So today I, or we, continue our path through the lectionary reading in the Hebrew Bible for this summer, our readings in First and Second Samuel. And today I take from my text the seventh verse of the 16th chapter of the book of First Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Whenever I'm in an airport and waiting for my plane, I like to browse through airport bookstores. Airport bookstores are like an Amazon top 10 seller list. They only stock the books that will fly off their shelves. They are the books that people actually read, especially business travelers. And one type of book I see again and again at these stores are books on leadership. I'd say there are as many books on leadership out there, especially in these types of stores, as there are self-help books, and that is saying something. It's almost as though people are obsessed with leadership, and that one idea, one book, will somehow revolutionize their leadership capacities. I have to say, when I first came across one of these books, I was pretty dismissive. Isn't leadership something innate? Some people are born great leaders, and some are not, right? It's easy to see why people would want to aspire to be better leaders. I mean, doesn't everyone want to be a superstar? Getting all the acclamation and being in charge? I know many of you like being in charge. This is a congregational church, after all. <laughs> and I have to say, it's so needed. Good leadership is so needed in 21st century American society. Business people live in a fast-changing environment. New trends, new products, new mergers appear virtually every day. Private equity and venture capital firms make huge sums of money if they can find new value in a company or take it to the next level. I remember hearing an interview with a leading venture capitalist who claimed that he cared more about the CEO of a company that he invests in than any other single factor. With the right leader, this venture capitalist is sure his investment will pay off. Without the right leader, but even with a good idea, he could easily lose money. Increasingly, academia, Hospitals and nonprofits are hiring MBAs and other managers to run organizations that used to be run by hospitals, doctors, or social workers. Leadership, leadership, leadership. That seems to be the key whispered among the halls of power, day after day. This movement, this obsession with leadership, seems to have passed by the mainline denominations and churches. When I was there, Yale Divinity School offered a range of courses on theology, Biblical studies, ethics, history, preaching, pastoral care, and not one course on leadership. No real need, right? Churches just run themselves. And the Bible doesn't talk about leadership, right? Well, the passage that we have, uh, the passage right before, the one that we have for today, Saul disappoints God and loses his mandate to rule as king. Let me fill you in on the story. King Saul is told to destroy the Amalekites, a neighboring nation, 
and then burn all of their property, or at least destroy all their property. This is not exactly a happy text. But Saul and his men, after they defeat the Amalekites, do not destroy everything. They take some of the booty for themselves. This, according to the text, leads God to seek out another person to be king. The passage ends with the gruesome description of Saul hacking the king of the Malachites in two in a ritualized execution. I wonder why that didn't make the lectionary reading. But clearly, there's something else going on here, some undercurrent to the text. It's, it's about more than just Saul disobeying God's order to destroy everything, as important as that seems to be in the narrative. Remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. You still had 12 tribes with 12 different identities. Saul cannot simply rule by fiat. He has to lead people and earn their trust as king. And it appears here that he is taking the spoils of war for himself and for his men and not sharing them among the tribes. He is being greedy for himself, and that is creating dissent among the tribes, and most particularly with Samuel, the great prophet and judge of Israel. So in our passage for today, Samuel goes out looking for a new candidate to be king. He doesn't want to make the same mistake he made with Saul. For this king, Samuel turns to the tribe of Judah and singles out Jesse and his sons as candidates. Arriving in secret, or at least under pretenses that wouldn't alarm Saul and his supporters if they found out, Samuel interviews each of Jesse's sons, one after another. These sons were the images of what a leader should be, tall, handsome, strong, charismatic. Yet one after another, Samuel rejects his sons. They don't have the right stuff. God tells Samuel what he should be looking for. Do not look on his, that is one of these sons, appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance. I have to admit, how true is that? How often do we look on personal appearance and make assumptions about leadership? Just recently, Kim Kardashian West visited the White House and had an audience with the president where she became a leader for pardoning someone who was serving an unjust sentence. What are Kim Kardashian West's qualifications for being a a leader in criminal justice reform? She is attractive and a reality TV star. Totally qualified leader. We see this phenomenon all the time, where Hollywood stars and other beautiful people take the lead on all sorts of issues. We seem to love it as a society. Oh, you're hot? You have lots of Instagram followers? Do you, you want to be a leader? Done. Instant authority. As Mae West said, love thy neighbor. And if he happens to be tall, devastating, and debonair, it will be that much easier. <laughs> and you can alter the quote to read, alter the quote a bit to read, follow your leaders. And if they happen to be beautiful or famous, it will be that much easier. It is said that Warren G. Harding got into politics because someone said he looked like a politician and encouraged him to run on that basis. Harding ended up becoming a very ineffectual and legendarily corrupt president of this country. But hey, he had the right look. Our visual and celebrity-focused culture has only made this more real. Movies and TV shows saturate our lives. Invariably, the lead roles are given to those who have the right leading man or leading woman look. Those images, those people, shape our perspectives on leadership, whether we like it or not. We can follow our leaders on Instagram and Twitter. Once they have these followers, they have real power. And if they have enough followers, they get paid just, just for being themselves and being pretty. King Saul of the Israelites was tall, handsome, and a good warrior. Those traits helped to make him king, but they didn't help him to succeed once he became king. 
I would argue if there is any time we needed the words of God in this passage, it is today. The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. In Hebrew, the word lev, uh, for, or heart, uh, is not the heart that we think of today. For the Israelites, the heart was not, just, was not only the seat of emotions, it was the, also the organ that helped us to think. It was a place where the intangibles of leadership came to the fore. In our adult Christian education class this month, we are reading through Landon Gilkey's Shantung Compound. For those of you who don't know, the book relates Gilkey's experience in a Japanese internment camp in China during World War II. Gilkey was an English teacher in Japanese-occupied China when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. In 1943, the Japanese rounded up all foreign nationals in China and put them into internment camps. One of the first things that confronted the internees was how to create a government for themselves. How were they going to choose their leaders, the people who organized the camp and then reported to the Japanese? It's, fascin- it's a fascinating look at how human nature works. Initially, leadership was about who had power and authority before they entered the camp. The leading business executives of international firms with offices in China were the first to anoint themselves and be recognized as leaders. What happened after that is intriguing. Once you had your initial group of 30 or so leaders out of a total population of 2,000, those 30 had to choose who would, represent them, who would represent them to the Japanese. This is when the jockeying for power got more intense. Unlike with the larger crowd, the struggle for leadership was not based on popular acclaim or prior wealth and position. The two leading candidates who emerged represented two very different styles of leadership. One was charismatic, debonair, witty. The other was a deep thinker who preferred only to speak after others had voiced their opinions. In this smaller group, it was the less attractive, less charismatic person who was finally selected as the leader because he had the wisdom and fortitude to lead. I have to admit that this jives quite well with my perception of leadership in smaller groups. When the group is smaller, outward appearance ceases to be much of a factor. Filling a room with words and charisma become less significant. What matters most becomes the person with the best, most thoughtful ideas, the person who has the ability to discern the issues and articulate his or her position clearly and with conviction. In smaller groups, people tend to care more about the Hebrew heart than outward appearance. Leaders, you might not expect, leaders who you might not expect to emerge do. A couple years ago, Bob Tucker, the senior minister emeritus here, decided to clear out some of his books. This is something that eventually I might get to myself, but that is a long way off. <laughs> One of the books that I got from Bob's collection was Jim Collins' Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Collins is a professor at Stanford and did an exhaustive study in which companies were able to make big leaps in value and profits over time. The first and most remarkable thing that Collins found was the nature of the leaders of companies who were able to be so successful. One might expect that the most effective leaders were those who were charismatic, dynamic, and had a strong public presence. One such leader is Lee Iacocca, the former CEO of Chrysler. Iacocca was the poster child of the 80s for the dynamic CEO. He was everywhere on TV and in front of Congress. He helped turn around his company from bankruptcy. Under his tenure, the Chrysler minivan became a cultural symbol. He even wrote a best-selling autobiography that highlighted his leadership. But as Colin points out, Iacocca's success was short-lived. While Chrysler had some good years, it reverted to losing money towards the end of his time there. For all of his bravado and public relations, he was unable to lead the company to sustained profitability and success. 
Hollins contrasted Iacocca's approach with that of Darwin Smith, the longtime CEO of Kimberly Clark, the paper goods manufacturer. Smith took a failing paper goods company and turned it into the most, one of the most profitable companies in the industry. During his 20-year tenure, he generated stock returns that were four times greater than the market. What was the key to Smith's success, according to Collins? Darwin Smith was quiet, self-effacing, and humble. His personality allowed him to attract and retain highly qualified and ambitious people around him. He was quick to give credit to others and knew how to use the talents of his subordinates. Smith also had an uncharacteristic iron will. He, had, he made some bold decisions for Kimberly Clark, decisions that were highly criticized at the time, but which turned out to be prescient in the long run. It was that combination of humility, keen analysis, and iron will determination to execute his plan that led to his incredible success. Successful leadership was not about bombast and a personality cult. Those things often undermine leadership, especially when you sought long-term success. It's far more important to have a Hebrew-style heart than outward appearance. One of the few authors on leadership that ministers actually do read uh, is Edwin Friedman. Friedman was a rabbi in Washington, D.C., who was trained as a psychologist. Friedman's specialty was family systems theory, which is a school of psychology that believes that you cannot understand someone's psychology without a thorough understanding of his or her family of origin. The, the relationship and dynamics of our family, according to this theory, profoundly impact the way we all deal with stress and anxiety when it comes up. Friedman used this theory to understand leadership in organizations, particularly in churches and synagogues. According to Friedman, when churches go through periods of anxiety, that's never happened to us, right? When churches go through periods of anxiety, the system reacts the way that it has been conditioned to react as a result of past conflicts. Just as people in the system react in ways that they were conditioned to react as children. Anything that upsets the homeostasis of a congregation, whether that thing is a long-term good or not, will provoke a variety of anxious responses. The one key for leadership in congregations, therefore, is to be a non-anxious presence. It is crucial that leaders are aware of how they react to anxiety and that they don't fall into those patterns, which can only increase the anxiety of the system, provoking more reactions from others. When congregations can relate to one another in non-anxious ways, they can cope with change and grow. There's a lot more that can be said about Friedman and leadership. And if you're even remotely interested in his perspective, I would highly recommend his book, Failure of Nerve. What's interesting about Friedman's approach is that he, too, rejects outward appearance, personality, and charisma as being the most important elements in leadership. It's about having a heart that is well self-differentiated, being someone who can think clearly and not reactively when stress arrives, and someone who can avoid provoking stress, reactions, and others. Now, King Saul was the poster child for an overreactive leader. We see him making rash decisions and acting out again and again throughout 1 Samuel, these tendencies undermine his leadership in spite of his superior skills in the battlefield or his good looks. In my final year of divinity school, I did an internship with ECHO, Elm City Congregations Organized, the local IAF affiliate in New Haven. This experience introduced me to community organizing along the model of Saul Alinsky. It was eye-opening in so many ways. One thing I learned about the IAF that I found intriguing was its approach to leadership. 
Like Samuel the prophet, IAF organizers are constantly on the lookout for unlikely leaders. Community organizers have discovered from long experience that some of the most effective leaders are those you would least expect. More than anything else, they are looking for people who are motivated and show the initiative to get things done. At the core of the IAF community organizing model are one-on-one meetings. These these one-on-one meetings are not your typical get-to-know-you conversations. Community organizers are looking for your story of your past. They want to find out where you've been and and where you've struggled, and most importantly, what motivates you. They are looking for leaders. They're just like Samuel interviewing Jesse's sons. They're not interviewing people who are in positions of power. They're interviewing people who want to build power and get things done. Maybe it's the woman who was sexually assaulted at one point and who was motivated to end sexual harassment and sex trafficking. Maybe it's the LGBT person who endured ostracism, shame, and bullying, who has a deep passion for the rights of all marginalized people. Maybe it's the parent whose child goes to an unsafe school, and that is what keeps him up at night. Maybe it's the experience of living without health care or having a family member who had to move because of gentrification. Whatever it is, whatever that deep motivating force is, that person has the potential for leadership. In your own story, in your own past struggles and current and in your own past struggles and current passions, lie your own potential for leadership. One final thing that I've learned about unlikely, about the unlikely nature of leaders over the years that is relevant. There's one other thing. Uh, that I've learned about the unlikely nature of leaders over the years that has relevance for our passage today. We see it in the example of King David. David is selected for leadership because he has the heart for it. He's wise, humble, committed to his cause. One thing he is not is experienced in being a king or leader, unless you count being the leader of sheep, that is. David is anointed by God and then grows into the role of a leader. That's one thing about leadership. Those who are motivated to lead, those who have the heart to lead, are not always given the opportunities to lead. But when they do, leaders emerge and can surprise us. When I was a rowing coach at Eton College, I remember putting one of the unlikeliest rowers into the stroke seat. For those of you who are not familiar with rowing, in an eight-person shell, the one closest to the stern is known as the stroke. It's up to the stroke to set the pacing for the whole boat. That athlete's rhythm and mental toughness are essential to success. We experimented with different people in that seat, people who exhibited stereotypical features of leadership. They were popular with their peers, or they were good athletes in other sports, but the boat wasn't moving quite right. James was someone who had been, this other person, someone who had been overweight his whole life. He did not have a wide group of friends, and was not someone you would peg as a natural leader. He had been bullied pretty mercilessly when he first entered the school. But rowing had turned his life around. James had lost nearly 50 pounds in the previous two years and was one of the hardest workers on the squad. In addition, he had the longest and strongest stroke of any of the rowers. He was as highly motivated as anyone, and when he, and he, when he was given the chance to lead, he did, even though he didn't believe he could at first. That crew won a national championship at their age level. And later, James was in a crew that won the Henley Royal Regatta, the de facto world championship for high school rowing. You see the same thing in churches again and again, and it's inspiring. People are asked to step up as leaders, even though they might not have much experience in church leadership. But the best leaders in church are those who are motivated by something deep down. 
something in their personal history that leads them to say yes, to say yes with a quiet passion. Humility, a strong will, an ability to discern the issues and listen to others, a non-anxious presence, a deep-seated motivation that grows out of personal experience. These things make up a good heart in the Hebrew sense of the word. These were the same traits that helped David establish a dynasty, one that would come to fruition in a carpenter from Nazareth. As Christians, we can learn from this passage. If we want to change our community and the world, it's not up to those whom society lauds as leaders. We need real leaders who, most importantly, have the hearts to lead. Will Samuel anoint you next?